You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Welcome, everyone. So today, um, I'm speaking here with Jamie Keach, and what we're going to be discussing are some of the key elements in the resource market, which is his speciality. Uh, we're going to cover off things like private placements and really essentially the structure of that market and why, why we are so excited about it and why we're placing our own capital into it. So um, welcome to Jamie. How are you going? Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm good. Always good, mate. Okay, so let's, let's dig right in. For starters, can you... Maybe it's best if we explain to listeners, those that don't know, and even those that do know, what is a private placement? Yeah. Um, so I, I wrote an article about this, which was published on Capitalist Exploits just last week. And the idea was to give readers and now listeners an idea of what a private placement is, in, uh, particularly to junior and mid-tier mining companies in the equity markets, so in the capital markets. So private placement is essentially when a publicly traded company issues new shares, new stock, and sells it at an agreed upon price. So if I'm a, if I'm a junior mining company, and the, and the best private placements, they're done when a company has a goal in mind. So if I'm a junior mining company and I need to raise a million dollars to do a drill program this summer to help prove out my resource, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say I'm going to issue X amount of shares, sell them at Y price in order to achieve a million dollars. Now, now my, my, my stock might already be trading on the market at a dollar. Um, but since I'm going to want to incentivize investors, I'm going to give them a deal on this, on this private placement. So I'm going to issue the stock in the private placement at 95 cents instead of a dollar. So the people coming in are gonna get a deal. If I want to further incentivize them, I might include a warrant uh, or a half warrant. So what will happen is an investor will buy a unit and that unit will include a share. And if the company chooses to issue one, a warrant. And a warrant's, a warrant's a thing that can essentially become another share after a given price. So if my warrant has a scratch price of $2, that means it's not worth anything until $2. But as soon as our share price gets to $2.05, that warrant is worth $0.05. So it's kind of a bet on the share price going up and getting another little piece, another stock that will be worth something, or another share rather, that will be worth something in the future. So this company, they're going to want to raise a million dollars. Hypothetically, they'll issue stock at 95 cents with a warrant and investors will come in. They'll put money into that. They'll get their share. They'll get their warrant. And the company will have a million dollars to devote to devote to whatever activity they're interested. In. Okay, perfect. So clearly from an investor <laughs> standpoint, you can get some, you can get a lot of leverage behind your investment that you wouldn't be able to 
um, get in the listed equity. And you mentioned something which I think is important, which is that the private placement is an investment in a publicly listed equity. And what that means is that the risk of liquidity, which is easily one of the most significant risks in private investing, is largely mitigated. So do you want to just explain like the typical term structure of, of these? So you'll like, let's say I put in my, I don't know, for argument's like 20,000 bucks into a deal that has a, um, a private placement. How long do I have to wait before I can get liquidity on that? And how long do I have to normally wait for liquidity on a warrant? Uh, well, so that really depends on the deal uh, and the company. So certain certain raises will have what's called a legend on them. It's essentially a hold period. So the most typical one of that is four months. So if uh, if you put twenty thousand dollars in and you get your stock, that's not going to be able to be free trading for four months. Others uh, are free trading right away. So I've participated in both. That really depends on how the company sets it up and uh, the requirements of the exchange that it's on. Um, yeah, so it can either be free trading right away or several months in the future. Uh, but either way, at that point, it will be on the on the market, and then investors can buy or sell as they see fit. Cool. Okay. Now, you and I have discussed this a, um, a bunch, and, and you made a fantastic point in your article um, on our site last week around the the way that this market, the way that the resource market has changed with respect to capital raisings. And you named a number of points. One was that the fact that the brokers that have been participating in the space um, historically are largely going away or have gone away. There's there's a dearth of them that are participating. So there's a supply issue there. Um, And the second is that the same as the bankers in that space have also largely been moving out of that space as a consequence of movement of capital into the passive space out of the active right. space. So that's what, explain what, what you're seeing there with respect to how these companies are being financed um, at the moment. Yeah. And, and what, what are the risks to, you know, again, we spoke about this before, what are the risks to investing in a company that isn't cognizant of what's been taking place and continues to take place at, a, at an accelerated um, <laughs> All right. Right. Yeah. So this, this question has a lot of parts. So, I mean, to start, this is something that's pretty obvious, I think, to anyone that's been paying attention, but they haven't potentially thought about the repercussions or, or thought down the line on this. So anyone that used to, used to have a stockbroker that they would call up and buy stock and is no longer doing that now, instead they're sitting at home on their couch and they're buying it on their Quest Trade account or whatever on the internet. And they're spending, you know, two, three, five dollars a trade instead of paying your broker commission. So all those jobs are going away. So and have all these guys that were sitting there when you used to mandatorily have to have a broker who are doing these trades, those jobs have more or less ceased to exist. And the only brokers that still remain are the few and far between, the ones that have had huge books, that have excellent relationships with clients, have older clients that haven't transitioned to the internet, and potentially have very good relationships with certain companies and that they're able to get clients in to these companies that they wouldn't be able to normally do by themselves. But for the most part, we're seeing, you know, this has gone away. 
Um, the result of that is that companies have lost a significant financing round that they've relied on. Um, so where a company could previously have gone to a broker that they had a good relationship with or the bank that he worked for and the bankers and said, listen, I want to do a bot deal. I want to raise a million dollars. And the bank would have said, all right, great. You know, we'll do it. We'll take the risk. We'll find the people. Uh, we'll take a cut off the top and don't worry about it. You're financed. That's not happening anymore. So those jobs aren't there. Those people aren't trading with the banks. It's, it's just not something that they can easily do. So companies are forced to find other alternatives. So how does that work? So instead of doing the typical bot deal, which is the bank buys the right to finance the company. So if the company's raising a million dollars, the bank says, here's the million dollars, give us the stock and we'll sell it to our clients. That's not happening. Today, it's the private placement and the company is forced to place that stock by themselves. So that means they need to be reaching out to people one way or the other to get independent, accredited investors who are interested in buying that stock to purchase it directly from them. Now, now this can happen a couple of ways. Uh, brokers sometimes are still used. So some brokers will have relationships with companies and they'll bring their clients in there or there are independent brokers that, you know, they're IR guys, they're promoters that just know a lot of people. They know companies and they're able to bring people in. Occasionally they'll cut a fee off the top of a couple percent, but more and more we're seeing that companies are really reliant on marketing themselves. And it's their responsibility to, to get their story out there. They're hiring PR firms. They're working with letter writers and independent researchers. They're partnering with as many people as they can to bring in these investors who will then participate in the financing that is, run by the company directly. So the benefit of this is they are essentially cutting out the middleman, but the, it's, which is good for the investor because when a company is paying less fees on the money they're getting, that means more of that cash is actually going towards the project. It's going into the ground. It's actually, it's actually being put to work for the investor and not being scooped off the top by a middleman. The downside is these are mining companies. You know, they're not PR guys. They're not necessarily marketers. You know, most mining companies are run by a geologist, an engineer, or an accountant. And I mean, you know, none of those careers typically scream salesmen. So they're having to find new ways to attract investors. And the companies that are being successful at this are the ones that have outreach programs, that have strong marketing teams, that, that have built relationships with individual investors, often over many years, and who will buy into that story and, and back that company and they understand the ups and downs of a mining project and they stick it through and they're able to push that project forward and raise money when they need it so they can get it into production or whatever the next stage is for a, for a liquidity event or a value add event. So there's, there's something I just want to interject with here and because I've seen this in the publishing space and um, I think it's a risk that, is also not well understood at the moment. Let's say for argument's sake, you've got a newsletter writer. Yeah. Um, like myself, right? And a company that I get a relationship with needs to do a financing of um, a million bucks, right? On a drill program, which is risky. Sure. Like it's a, it's a drill program. We don't really know if there's yeah. something there or not. So we get a pretty, we can even get a pretty decent deal on it. 
Um, subsequent to that drill program, even if it is successful, um, there is a high probability, um, I would say an almost 100% um, probability that there will be a requirement to, to raise additional capital. Um, okay. Well, if a drill and program is successful, then there will be for sure. I mean, it's, and it's going to be a multiple of that, the initial program. So for argument's sake, it could be $5 million to put in some infrastructure, um, could be roads, it could be um, partial build of a mine, whatever it is. Um, and I'm being probably a bit conservative, but let's just go with that for argument's sake, 5 million bucks. Now, I as a newsletter writer, I might be able to um, attract a million dollars, but I can't necessarily attract $5 million. And, and this is an important concept because the success of any deal, as you would, you would know and you've pointed out to me um, at many, many times in the past, Jamie, is a multiple of things. It's, the, it's not just the ability to finance initial drill programs, but it's the, the ability to follow up financing and to run that company on a financing level through to a successful um, build. And, and that's really, really important because that entire structure of that market, as you just pointed out, is, 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 is being collapsing. And the companies which are successful are those that understand that, that massive shift in capital raising that's been taking place. And then consequently being able to go and change the way that they do business to be able to finance that company right. all the way through. So, well, it's particularly important that they're not going to be like, they can't rely on going to a bank, whether it be, you know, BMO or CIBC or any of the big investment banks that have a big mining team and say, look at, you know, our drill program was successful. Now, now cut us a $50 million check for the next stage. Uh, that's, you know, that doesn't, you can't say it doesn't exist at all, but it doesn't exist to the degree that it did five years ago. And that's um, the risks behind that are, are substantially higher than many people understand at the moment because they're as is normally the case people look in the rearview mirror and they extrapolate that into the future when in fact you're like it's like looking in the rearview mirror and you've just come up a hill but you're actually going down a hill now and yeah and anticipating that you're going to continue going up the hill when in fact you're you're heading back down the mountain well i think the first thing is that the initial raise it's really got to be for something that can add value to the company so whether it's a, you know, a drill program or a construction program or what have you, if, if you're going to be participating in a private placement or, or even just buying a company's shares on the market, I mean, you want to know that they are doing something that has the potential at least to add value to that company, to, to bring it to the next stage, to justify going to the next stage and to add value uh, to its share price. So, you know, we'll continue with the example of a drilling program. You know, this company needs to have targets. They need to have a goal. They need to be wanting to expand their resource or hit intercepts, whatever, whatever it may be. But, you know, as an investor, you need to buy into what they're doing and believe that it's going to add value if they're successful. At it. And I mean, you know, as well as I do, if a drill program, if they're successful is, is, is a big if. <laughs> but uh, yeah. so that's the risk you're taking. But say, say they are successful. So say they, you know, they hit the intercepts they want or they they make the discovery they're after or they're just expand their resource whatever it may be the next stage is how are they going to finance the next stage of that whether that be a more in-depth drilling program or perhaps you know going into construction or the feasibility study or, or any number of things uh, and generally you know if they're 
on the right track, whatever the next stage is, is probably going to be an order of magnitude more expensive than, than the last one. Now, a good example of someone that did this right is uh, Noble Resources. So they did a, an initial private placement financing. Um, and I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it was at a low price and it was for a few million dollars. They did trenching programs, drilling programs. They had massive success. They publicized it really well with YouTube videos and, and marketing. And then a few months after that, uh, Kirkland Lake Gold came in, wrote a check for 56, I think it's $56 million. It's on that, it's on that order of magnitude, but don't quote me on that. But an order of magnitude greater uh, at a much higher valuation. So that's a company that did it really well. They financed at a low price. They had a plan going forward. They executed on that plan, but they also really did a great job of marketing it and getting excitement around that story and sort of building that value so that they could do the next financing that could, they could use to continue and take the project forward. Um, if a company doesn't have that, you know, the, the danger is that they become stranded. So they do their program, they get their results. Maybe they're even good, but nobody cares. Uh, you know, no one yeah, is buying the party and nobody, nobody comes. It's, it's going to so, you know, fantastic yeah, mistake, food. And, a, a mistake yeah. you see a lot of people do is they do a private placement and they take all the money um, and they push it and they squeeze every drop out of it. And, you know, this is kind of a novice move. And this is why private placements in good companies are exclusive. It's hard to get into good private placements. The smart companies, they don't take all the money on the table. If they could raise $20 million, they only take 10 or 15 because they want a certain amount of aftermarket, right? They want people yeah. to be saying, you know, shit, I didn't get in there. I better go buy it on the market before it goes up. And well, they you need that, that secondary financing. That's, that's yeah. Exactly. And you're seeing the smarter companies, the ones that can afford to be choosy when they do a placement because they know what they're doing. They know they need to have people buying their stock. And I know they're already thinking about the next step and what they're going to have to do there. I think it's a really good point. I mean, it's one of the things we've looked at, Jamie, like we'll not finance a company. will not finance a great resource, a great asset. If the company doesn't understand that change in the capital structure and how it's financed um, into the next decade, it, it, and it, yeah. can be a, it can be the best resource. It can, this thing could be a massive home run, but we'll, we'll not touch it because the risks are actually far greater than anybody anticipates because that whole financing structure has changed and it's just changing literally daily. And if you don't get that, you're not, you're going to risk losing uh, money and, and risk is the first thing you've got to uh, address in any particular investment. And I think that's really important for people to understand. Like it's, you're going to have companies that are, kind of we'll call them ho-hum right in terms of their reason okay, yeah but but they fully understand that that capital structure and they run it efficiently and properly and they will succeed and then on the other hand you can have a company that's got the best resource under the sun but they don't understand that and they have a much much higher probability of not succeeding and in fact well, what will happen is that the ho-hum company, ho company will end up acquiring the assets um, for cents on the dollar when, when they just cannot finance and they, they That's run right. out of capital. Or, or a major will come in and buy it out for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. You asked me, uh, you, you asked me about the difference or the effect of uh, 
the shift from active to passive investment on the industry over the last few years. And, um, you know, the first person that really got me thinking about this was Nolan Watson from Sandstorm. And I mentioned him and I linked to a video he did uh, in that last article that I wrote for you. Um, I believe he was at the Minds and Money Conference in London last year. And he talked about Sandstorm's own personal, you know, stock. And they are held, and don't quote me on this, but I believe they 30% of their institutional investors are passive investors. And by passive investors, we mean, you know, ETFs or yeah. index funds or, you know, often people that are buying a basket of gold companies or a basket of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in this case, streaming or royalty companies or what have you. And they're not active investors. They're not the hedge fund that goes on and yeah. says, give me, you know, the first $2 million of your next financing. And I don't know, I mean, Chris, you've raised money for projects. I've raised money for projects. I mean, raising money is only hard <laughs> until you get the first person to buy into it, right? And yeah. a lot of mining companies for a lot of years have been relying on these active institutions to go and write the check for the first, whatever it may be, half a million, million dollars. And then they get a lot of other people piling in. Then you know, brokers can say, oh, look, XYZ fund already put in a million dollars to their clients and their clients are going to say, oh, good, must be good. And then they want to invest too. But that money's, you know, these, that money's shifting. So these funds are not existing to the same degree they wanted to, as they used to rather, and they're not uh, participating in the same way that they used to. That, that slack's being picked up by passive investors, you know, ETFs, again, index funds, that cannot write that check. That's not their mandate. So they're, no. that, money's, that money's in a different pool that can't behave in the same way. Yeah. And, and there's this window of, of financing within the entire capital structure and I guess the lifetime of a resource company where there's just this, this gaping hole. Um, and it's, it's made me think about something which... You know, I'm not 100% sure about it. It seems logical to me, but I thought I'd throw it out and see what your thoughts on it were, which is supply and the constriction on supply. Surely where you've got this, you, you know, there's a constriction in, in, in financing, right, as we've just right. discussed. Is that not being potentially um, translated into a constriction in supply of resources it would make logical sense to me but i've not investigated the numbers by it is it well is okay it, just uh, thinking about this i mean let's think about this so a lot of this the area that they're having these these challenges in the early stage stuff in the in the expiration or what, what is called the junior markets and yeah so that's where you're feeling it the most um you're not seeing these these little companies get financed the way they used to, or at least getting financed to a to a means with which they're able to operate effectively. Um, and instead, and instead, you're seeing often senior companies, you know, the big boys like BHP or Barrick or or Tech or what have you, investing in these smaller companies um, mm. in projects they like as they're at a as they're going forward and taking a big chunk of that. But, you know, it's, it's a much smaller pool than it used to be. And, you know, in some ways, in some ways that's a good thing because I think if anyone was around for 
the last mining boom, they were probably well aware that a lot of those companies probably didn't deserve to exist in the first place. So we've seen a big culling of uh, what, what, what is commonly referred to as the lifestyle company, uh, yeah. where perhaps, you know, management doesn't actually know anything about mining or geology. They're just a promoter or marketer in some way. And they've come and they've raised money on the back of an idea that never had any business being financed. And they've sat on that money for years and kind of dribbled it out to themselves. So I think a lot of those have been cut out, but I mean, it is harder for these companies to get financed and there are a lot less of them than they used to be. It'll be interesting as a, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years as you know, the actual miners start getting to the bottom of the barrel of their resources and they need to go out and start acquiring assets again. And you know, the small little investments they've made are not going to cut it. And there's not that plethora of options to choose from. So it's going to be, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm thinking because you've got that, you've got that typical cycle, which, which is, um, it's just such, so beautiful in the resource markets because it's so, <laughs> it's so obvious. Um, but yes, it's almost like there's, there's a little bit of steroids that seem like they've been added to that because of the, the, the way that financings have been, have been done in the past and the way that they're currently being done. And so there's this dearth of capital. We know that like that's, it's as obvious as mud to us, but then I look at it and I think, well, is that not surely that's translating into a dearth of really resources that are coming to the market. Yeah. But um, I, I think it's, it's just part of the natural cycle. I think we've seen this before. Uh, you know, not for some time, uh, you know, we came off this so-called super cycle in the end of 2012, yeah. which had been kind of going for, I don't know, what would you say the better seven to 10 years before that. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, so I came out of university in 2007 at about the peak of this thing. And there was all this talk that, you know, the cyclical nature of the resource industry is over, you know, gold is going up forever. China's growing at an alarming pace and they're going to need more copper and what have you forever. And the cycle's over. Um, and people were able to believe that because it was so big and, you know, so aggressive, but also so long compared yeah. to a to typical cycle. And I think what, instead of the cycle being over, it's just been stretched. So we had a long, long up and we've had a very long down, you know, since 2012, things have been slower in the industry until, probably the last two years, I would say you've started to see it come yeah. up again. Yeah. And I think it's just going to, there was so much capital, uh, you know, that got locked up in these little juniors that basically clung to life for the better part of a decade. And, you know, they're finally starting to filter out and now we're going to start to see this, this uh, crunch again. So I think it's part of the same thing that's always happened. It's same, just yeah. a matter of uh, a kind of stretched timeline. Than more than people are used to. Right, right. Okay, so um, maybe maybe if we explain um, briefly what what we're looking for in a company when when we go and finance them, um, and you know, obviously this is something that we're going to be bringing to readers' attention via a service that we'll be launching shortly. But maybe if we kind of give um, a rundown or as to, you know, what is it that we're looking for, um, in a company, both in terms of like, you know, you talked about management and, um, all of those sorts of things. So not so much about that, but, um, that entire, um, 
idea of capital structure and and what is it that you need to be because look whether whether a subscriber buys this thing or not doesn't matter they need to understand how that's changed and and what to look for um because like i said i've i've been looking at um the space for some time and the fact that you and i are working together on this is because i needed um you know and someone of your skill set to help um, right. to be able to build well, this stuff out but like I so, said, there's been a bunch of stuff that I look at. I'm like, these these deals look kind of interesting, but there's there's no follow up capital, and and there's like there's all these risks that I don't think people are fully understanding. And so maybe let's kind of run through what is it then? Yeah, you know, let's take off the stuff that we need to look for. I mean, so I mentioned this in my my article about management, uh, and well, so assume the project is good. You know, assume it has the potential you're looking for, whether it's a, a mining deal, an exploration project, or a streaming or a royalty company. Assume that that checks all the boxes. And now assume the management is competent. You know, it's run by technical or capable people that have done this sort of project before. They've they've discovered uh, projects, they've built mines, whatever, whatever the job may be. Something I mentioned is you need to have people that can afford to make mistakes with people that can sort of have a second shot in them and what i really meant by that and i think this pertains to what we're talking about now is whether it goes right or whether it goes wrong uh, early on there's there's going to be hiccups and whether it's a good project and a good management team they're going to need more money than they think they're going to need you know mines are hard to build you know it's an expensive process everything takes longer and costs more than you generally expect so you need this team that has how do I say the best way to say it is like they have a constituency. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a politician. They have a group of people that believe in them and will back them. So it's not, you know, a couple of investors or a couple of funds or whatever it is that are in there to make a quick buck. You know, the, pro- the stock goes up, they're out and they crush the stock. Price. I guess it's lunch. The stock goes down a little bit and they abandon it. I guess, Jamie, it's longevity of capital. And that longevity of capital is a consequence of longevity of relationships, which itself yes. is a consequence of experience and expertise. Yeah. So and you it's, and I it's will, capital that yeah. believes in the management team and believes in the project and will we'll stick it out. So, yeah, based on their relationships, based on their understanding, they're, they're committed to seeing it go forward to achieve the goal. Right. Very good. But I think I think you said it well. I mean, you see these groups that have built these long-term relationships with financiers, and they've called on that for multiple projects, for multiple assets. They they there's teams that have built company after company or mine after mine, and the same people back them every time because they believe in what they do. Yeah. And those are those are the guys you really want to find because it's the smart money. It's you know the the big phones are the very experienced investors that have thrown their money behind them and they're not going to bulk at the first sign of trouble. And, and you know what, this is interesting because it's actually Soros's theory of reflexivity because you can have a company that's got that longevity of capital. Yeah. And it'll succeed as a consequence of that. So it's like, there's a feedback loop, right? And you can have have a side company that looks exactly the same. It has the same resource. It has, um, equally competent management, but it doesn't have that longevity of capital and it will fail 
um, and it'll fail because there's an, an, an inability to continue to raise capital to to bring it to fruition. And so that yeah, inability well, of, of, ca- of raising capital actually exacerbates and brings about its risk of demise, whereas your company, which has got the longevity of capital, there's a feedback loop that it's, it's increasingly more likely to survive because of the ability for it to go back and, and raise the required capital. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's like there, there mean, is probably the best example of that in mining might be Robert Friedland. So yeah. you see him start a project or a company and often, often the way that company ends or the project in it is not the, not the same one as it began with. I mean, the most famous example is Voices Bay. Well, Voices yeah. Bay, a giant nickel project in Eastern Canada, was owned by Diamond Fields, which started off as a Namibian project, a Namibian diamond, yeah. and a Namibian underwater diamond <laughs> project. <laughs> so, you literally, you could not get two more different things, but it's because the people backing him had faith in what he was doing, and he was continually able to raise that capital, uh, despite you know, assets that didn't work out the way they were supposed to and shifting projects. And then in the end, he delivered. And that's been, you know, the catalyst for his success going forward too. Because people believe that he'll pull it up no matter what it is. When you get these teams that their financiers believe in, you know, they get a lot of, they got a lot of swings. Yeah. And, and it's not just luck because the increasingly, you know, they do, they do succeed. And, you know, you could say, well, are they succeeding as a consequence of their ability to raise capital? Yes, but their ability to raise capital is also as a consequence of their ability to execute on utilizing yeah. that capital efficiently. And so totally. it's, it's a it's, positive feedback loop. Exactly, exactly. And, those, and as you mentioned, you know, financing in companies that are in that space is, is very much relationship-driven, um, but... Um, we're also at this, yeah, like we're at the stage where those, that financing has changed. And even some of those, even some of those companies are, are realizing that they've got to change the way they go about raising capital and they are like, we've seen it. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's kind of a unique time. I find it really interesting. And I'm not sure how it's all going to play out. One of the thoughts that I had, and I was curious to get your thoughts on this was, in, in an environment where you can't raise capital as efficiently or as easily, shall we say, as you would have in the past to brokers and bankers and um, the likes, yeah, would it not be a situation where your, your majors, because remember, most of the majors eventually get to the point where they're, they're depleting their resources and they, re- they realize they've got to stock up the shelves, right, in the pantry. Yeah. And so then they often will go out and they'll buy out these companies that have been testing and drilling and finding resources and everything else. But like when they, when there's a dearth of those, as they kind of are as a consequence of this change in the capital structure, you as a large corporate um, mining house need to probably start addressing that issue, right? And I wonder if you start maybe spending more money on R&D yourselves and building out a division that actually does that because way well, back that was kind see, of what companies yeah, used yeah. to do. But, but then we went through the, that. Yeah, they used to. And, and I just sort of wonder, do you, 
I think there's a possibility that we move back into this realm where the majors land up financing exploration and, and maybe they do it via, you know, some... I think um, they do it via outsourcing, sort of. I think yeah. they... I mean, I think my guess is, you know, when a major puts money into a junior, it's, it's generally called a strategic investor. Uh, wow. And I think you probably, as majors become more desperate to stock that pipeline of projects, I think you start to see them get more aggressive in that. Uh, in, in investing in and financing companies at earlier stages. You know, a lot of majors now have a lot of cash in the bank. You know, they kind of learned their lesson in the last downturn and they've been stockpiling capital as best they can. And the day will come when they need to deploy that. And, uh, you know, if those companies aren't there, they're, they're going to have to start helping them exist. I don't think they, st- I don't think it moves in house again. I just don't think, listen, listen, like exploration gets harder and harder every year for every mine that gets found. There's one less out there to find. And, uh, it's generally not considered the most efficient way for a major to deploy capital by doing exploration themselves. You know, they let those early stage groups take the, take the most risky stage and then, and then they enter. And I think we're going to be seeing more of that. And as that happens, it's going to incentivize more of these juniors to exist and they're going to get financed more often and then we'll be off to the races again. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're probably right. I think you're probably right. Either way, I think it's, there's that kind of gap in the market there that looks really, really yeah. interesting. Well, you're seeing this more, I mean, non-traditional financing. I mean, this comes back again to the private placement and it's, it's the accredited retail investor has a lot more power now than they, than they ever did before. And you're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, be they letter writers or independent research uh, analysts with, with offering services or or even you know certain promoters with a lot of relationships they're often the one putting people into these projects so they're they're doing the legwork they're doing the the analysis they're building the relationships with these companies and then they're bringing in their readers or their colleagues or what have you and you know the, the companies that are going to make the transition and survive this are the ones that sort of see and appreciate the shift and they really shift to they shift themselves to to reaching out to investors and to building that relationships with their actual investors as opposed to with their banker and broker. I mean, a lot of mining companies got financed because one CEO used to work at a bank, decided he wanted to start a mining company, called up his buddies or met them over beer, and they said, "Yeah, don't worry about it. We'll raise you twenty five million dollars." And off they went. You know, that's yep. not we're not seeing that anymore. Yeah, which I think is a good thing. It it lands up, um, yeah, it lands up bringing the relationship between capital and the execution of the capital one step closer to the same thing. And well, and it it makes companies accountable to their investors, right? Like if the if your only important relationship is your banker, and he's going to make money no matter what, right? He's going to get his cut off, get his cut off the top, his you know, his pound of flesh. So he's happy and, to see it, and, yeah. whatever happens. But when you actually need to make money for people that come in and back you early, and you need to convince them to stick with you when things aren't necessarily going the way you know you said they would or you hope they would, that's gonna that's gonna really shift, I think, both the kind of people that succeed in this industry to a 
a better a better management team you know a, a, a trustworthy management team and it's gonna it's gonna really highlight better projects too because now it actually has to be a good project it has to succeed for people to be happy no i agree with you i i, I fully agree and um yeah i'm curious jamie in in your profession um are you seeing because <laughs> i mean here's another thing like there's there's the idea of going out and becoming a mining engineer for example yeah, um yeah i mean i congratulate you on doing it but to a certain extent i'd say well jamie why why on earth would you have done that right because you and i both know that mining engineers don't make a whole lot of money right it's right. and like you get, it's, it's and it's a very well, technically yes. in sort of competent type of industry it's not like it's not an easy thing to do it's, it takes a certain intellect right so like these are not dumb people um and yet they haven't been compensated and even in like in the boom they were right but now when i look at it today i can't imagine that there's a whole heap of graduates coming out of out of school going oh jesus i really want to become a mine, become a mining engineer or a geologist or anything of that nature and and so um yeah. those that are in the industry you know um there's like where are they going right because it's hard the, so i mean i can talk from my perspective on that like i i decided to become a mining engineer when i was 17 and i asked my guidance counselor at high school you know what can i do where i get to work outside and make a lot of money and he had a friend that was a geologist and i kind of looked into it there and i decided engineering was probably a better fit for me and and off I went and I, you know, I worked in exploration in the mountains in Albania. I worked uh, in Mexico and Nevada doing exploration. And then, you know, after university, I ended up in Mongolia. Uh, and I can tell you after spending eight months in a shipping container on a mine site in the Gobi desert, I, uh, <laughs> the, the novelty, <laughs> the novelty of working outside kind of had, had, uh, had worn off for me. And, uh, you know, I'd seen some of my friends and colleagues had, had gone to the banking side. And so I, I really paralleled this. So I had buddies who from university that had become bankers or analysts and, you know, they were making as much or more than I was and they weren't living in a steel box in the desert. And I also saw the guys who were above me. So, you know, you get two types of people really working in these uh, frontier locations. You get the young, three types, I'll call it three. So there was me, the young guys that were really like, early twenties and looking for an adventure. Then yeah. you got the guys who were around their early thirties who had been working somewhere else, but they got offered a big promotion. And, you know, they went from being some middle level guy to being, to getting a big job at a young age, big paycheck. And the idea for them was they, you know, they do that for two to five years then they're back in Australia or Canada or wherever. And they you know they're senior management at a company. And then you got the guys that were like generally in their fifties, you know, and, something had gone wrong and you know they were divorced three or four times they're chronic alcoholics they're living in these challenging places uh and they're stuck because they're making more money than they could anywhere else and they you know they're probably paying alimony to two or three wives and their kids don't talk to them and i figured out pretty early on i didn't i didn't want to be part of that, dem <laughs> you didn't want to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well I, I you know i saw the path and i was like jesus i gotta I got to make some changes here. Uh, 
So I ended up coming back to Canada. I worked in consulting for several years. And then again, exactly what you're saying. I was working, you know, 12 hours a day uh, at a, in a damn suburb in a box, you know, crunching numbers all day. And I was not making anywhere near as much as, as uh, my colleagues in the finance side. And I, I shifted towards that. And I, you know, I got into the market side. I started, you know, learning about putting deals together. I started uh, learning about building companies and I, I made the shift there. Yeah. And I think you're seeing, I think you uh, you see a lot of people and I, I speak for the guys that I've been friends with and the people that I went to university with, most of them, uh, probably two thirds of them figure that out at some point in their career and, and then they shift over that way. The other yeah. team, the other group tries or does become senior management in a mining company. And I mean, you can make a lot of money uh, and have a relatively easy life doing that. You know, it's not as high stress or as high pressure, but you make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. You got a nice pension, you got a nice house and it's not so bad. Right. Yeah. Mm. So I don't know. Was that, <laughs> was yeah, that no, answer your that's, question? That's, that's, did I, like, did I go off on a tangent there? No, that was actually really interesting to kind of, um, it's funny that you say that because it's like I've met all of those guys, but I've never sort of sat down and, and sort of said, oh, yeah, that's it. You know what I mean? Like you, you, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, um, you well, talk about Mongolia. Um, I went, I traveled out there. Success. Sorry, say again? It's the guy that goes for the short-term success over the long-term success. Yeah. Because it's pretty awesome being 25 and making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and flying all over the world and feeling like a hotshot. But that like, that novelty really wears off by the time you're 45 and you're divorced and you're a hundred pounds overweight and you know, you're can't go half yeah. an hour without a drink. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's just a laugh because it's like, a, I know all those guys. I've met them, you yeah. know, and Any, anyone who's ever been to a frontier market, there's always some like fucking Irish full of drunk old white guys that are like, something has gone wrong. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, oh, fascinating. So, yeah, I mean, I guess um, it, it, that did sort of answer the question to a certain extent, certainly, but, but I think that's probably consistent across the industry, almost irrespective of time. I guess my question was a little bit more around, like, as the market structure is today, um, like, you know, there's, there's few brokers that are... Um, and this isn't just resources. I mean, it's because there's the move to passive investment has been consistent across um, uh, sectors. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you're in the heart of the financing resource industry there in Vancouver. And, and so um, the guys that are getting into being brokers and things of that nature, there's not really the window of opportunities aren't really there for them anymore to the extent that they no. were in the past. And so I just sort of wonder where, like, because, and, and I had um, my first broker was a gentleman by the name of Paul Van Eden and um, listeners might even remember his name and he worked for what was global resources and he was a fantastic guy and he's kind of drifted off and he's doing his own thing now to the best of my knowledge yeah, so um, I actually know Paul pretty well. Uh, okay. He, he became a letter writer um, yeah. for some time, and then he sold his letter, and now he, he essentially does his own deals now. I mean, he's uh, he's the chairman, I believe, of 
Evram, which is a company I'm going to be talking about next couple of weeks. And uh, yeah, a few other things. He's, you know, he, yeah, he's done so really like, well for himself, you know, but he, he, he did get he out of the broker game for sure. But he, but he wasn't a finance guy to start with anyways. So like, um, and I, I don't quote me on what his original um, qualification was, but it was something similar to yours, whether, whether he was a jail or a mining engineer or, he was, um, he was a, should we call it a technical, a technically competent individual as opposed to just a finance guy. Right. Like, yeah. I do yeah. believe he came from some sort of science background. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, cause he came from Pretoria originally anyways. And he was, he was fantastic. I loved the guy and, and I made a lot of money with him. Um, because he was just a trusted individual that I could jump on the phone and, and run through stuff with. And yeah. um, it was a bit of a, a bit of a pain in the ass when he left the finance industry um, because I kind of lost that connection. But, and he was very, you know, he understood cycles and he understood that there was times when we were going to make money and there was times we just, you just shouldn't be involved. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And that's going to happen. Um, and so, but you know, for, for guys like that, um, I mean, even yourself, Jamie, like there's no, you wouldn't necessarily go out now and, and try and get a broker position because no, so it's a different, really it's a different game. So you, mm. I see, uh, you know, younger mining engineers or geologists or sometimes accountants that are interested in mining. They're not becoming brokers anymore. They're often going into private equity. Uh, it's a good example. So they, they go on and become analysts at private equity firms. And they also go in and work for some of the big banks. So a lot of people will go to the BMOs or the Scotias or the TDs and they'll be an analyst and maybe they'll work their way into being a banker, but not, I mean, not so much the brokers, uh, the young brokers that I know here in Vancouver, um, almost to a man, every one of the younger guys, their father was the broker and they came in and they've inherited their book. Yeah. So it's not a growing industry. No, it's uh, I mean, I mean, I have a broker that I use, but I, I mean, I only use them so I can be involved in private placements. Uh, almost no one, I don't know anyone my age, not really heavily involved in the mining industry that has a broker anymore. They do all the trading online. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, thinking from my own perspective, I mean, that's why I wanted to get in, involved with you and what you're doing. I saw the potential to participate in these private placements. Uh, you know, I've made very good returns myself on the ones that I have partaken in. And, you know, the people that are able to do that, it's, it's basically the people that have relationships with companies. Uh, it's people that know the management teams and are able to, to, to able to choose the good, from the bad or rather uh, separate the good from the bad and then have the relationships with the good to, to participate because I mean, anyone can get into a private placement uh, or rather I should say any accredited investor can get into a, a private placement, but the good ones are competitive. I mean, yep. It's, it's not easy. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, very good. Hey, well, um, Jamie, we're knocking up against an hour here, so I don't want to keep everybody going for too long, but this has been a, a great um, conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. And, Thanks uh, for uh, inviting me on again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hopefully uh, listeners got some great value out of it. I know I did. And yeah. um, you know, we're both excited about 
um, the stuff that we're doing together and that we're going to be showcasing to readers. So um, for anyone that, that is an accredited investor, and I know in certain countries that's not a requirement, so you'd have to look at your own jurisdiction and what the, the rules no. and regulations around that are. But I believe for most uh, for most TX or TSX companies, Canadian listed companies, uh, the accredited investor rules tend to apply to Canadians and Americans. Uh, I mean, don't quote me on that, and, and anyone should do their own due diligence. But in my experience, that's what I've mostly seen. Yep, yep, yep. Um, this, I know there are different um, regulations pertaining to each you know, domicile that you happen to be in, and um, and some of them don't have any regulations and so on and so forth, but obviously we can't cover the entire world and um, give give any advice around that. But um, if you fall into that bracket and have an interest, then um, you might want to be taking yeah. a look at what we're doing. So, And we should define that an accredited investor is anybody that makes over $200,000 a year or has a million dollars in assets, not including their primary resident. Yeah. Yeah. Which... Given what the central banks have done, um, isn't typically that hard. <laughs> you think about um, yeah. the inflation of assets that they've, they've managed to conjure up. Um, it's been pretty phenomenal. So, um, and actually, just the last thing, I know this is really sort of going off tangent, you know, but it was something that popped into my head when you were talking about it and I forgot to mention it. Um, because I'm kind of more focused on that global macro landscape and all the various pieces, you mentioned that the resource industry started picking up sort of mid 2016. And I don't think it's a, con it's a, I don't believe it's a coincidence that that was when the bond market topped, right? Um, back in 2016, sort of July, we had about $13 yeah. trillion trading negative. And if you look at LIBOR and you look at all the, you know, um, Cross currency rates and and um, uh, interest rates across the globe, and you can pick pretty much any um, any bond market that you wish. You can see that trend um, in motion, and it's it's it was literally at the same. I mean, it was almost like tick for tick that you looked at how resources have moved um, relative to the bond market, and and um, you know that's 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 just one reason that we've been focused in, in insider and resources. Um, and it's obviously why we're talking together and why we're working together. Um, we think that, that the entire confluence of factors, which are phenomenal. I mean, the amount of capital that's been poured into bond markets post the GFC is nothing short of extraordinary. And then we've got all of these other fun things taking place that we just discussed today. I, I'm just quite excited I'm excited and concerned. Um, I think if you weren't concerned about where things are going in the world today, you're a little bit naive. Yeah, um, your blinders on for sure. Yeah, but you know that it's just that that's what you got. You got you know the card. But even I mean, you still need to position yourself to. You got the take, cards. Take advantage of the changes played, and, and you you got to you got to play the cards that you dealt, and and we're not here to. We can pontificate around what we think we'd like to have take place in the world, but really that's just intellectual masturbation. It's fun to do, but it doesn't mean anything and no one's going to give a shit. So that is what it is. <laughs> I wish it wasn't the case, but um, anyways, that's been great chatting, Jamie. Um, we will catch up again and we'll have some more of these sorts of conversations for listeners. So 
Um, right. Feel free to post any comments around your thoughts. We look forward to we look forward to more of the same. So thanks a lot, and um, we'll chat next time. Yeah, my pleasure. Cheers, Chris. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at.